Well, we're in this series that we've entitled, Who Am I? Asking this question when it comes to many of the different aspects of our lives. And we spoke and, and talked about this question with regards to our sexuality last week and asking the question, Who Am I? When it comes to living a, a life that pleases God when it comes to the sexual arena and putting away sexual immorality and impurity that should not be amongst the saints and the followers of Jesus Christ. And we come to verse 22 of chapter 5 where we ask this question, who am I when it comes to marriage? Who am I in this marriage? A wife needs to ask that question. A husband needs to ask that question. And the reason why is this is the most important relationship outside of your relationship with Jesus Christ in the world. Marriage is the most central and critical of all relationships in society. And we as the people of God are called to be imitators of God and to walk lives of love towards those that are closest to us. It has been said that our spouses are our closest neighbors, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves is a verse that needs to be applied most directly to the spouse of which God has given us. And so we have to ask this question, who has God made me? How has God purposed me to live in this marriage covenant, in this marriage relationship? Now what Paul is going to do in these verses is he's going to speak and he's going to share the longest passage in all of the Bible on the subject of marriage. And yet within it, it's not exhaustive. It doesn't address every situation, every scenario. Much is omitted from Paul's words. But Paul lays forth principles that I think are the building blocks and foundation of a healthy and vibrant marriage. Now, I know that there are some here who have come into this series looking forward to this week. What is Tim going to say? There are husbands who have been licking their chops and saying, this is the week that he lets my wife have it. <laughs> Let's just go to the Lord and pray for Lance's safety. <laughs> because there's a whole bunch of women that are going to kill him by the end of the... No. Okay? There are... <laughs> Thank you, Tina. There are wives who have been waiting for this message saying, okay, Pastor Tim is going to deal with my laissez-faire, my spiritually inept, my selfish husband. And I'm going to say both of you probably are going to be disappointed. There are some who have come with some real crises and problems in your marriage. And you've come and, and you've said, here, here it is. Pastor Tim is going to bring it. Paul is going to address it. And, and, and here's going to be the magic bullet. We've been dealing with issues. We've been dealing with struggles. And, and here it is. Here's the sermon on marriage. And, and Tim, you've got 32 minutes and 47, 46, 45 seconds. And you're going to fix it. And here's the problem. Those problems, those crises, those situations, those dysfunctions didn't grow in 30 minutes and they're not going to be dealt with in 30 minutes. That's the sad reality and truth. I cannot preach a good enough of a sermon that will fix every problem in every situation. 
what I can do is I can offer you God's truth and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in your life and in your spouse's life and by the grace and mercy of God hopefully set you in a direction that will bring great good to you and even important, more importantly, great glory to God. So here's what I wanna say before we d dig into this any deeper. If you're in a place of crisis, find help. If you're in a place where you're struggling in your marriage, if you're in a place that you are, have no other place to turn, turn to someone. Find someone whom you respect, whose marriage from all looks of it seems strong and grounded in God's word. And would you go and talk with them? Someone that's trustworthy enough that you can lay the most important and intimate of details before them and say, listen, I'm really struggling and they're not gonna go and declare it to the world. That you'd be able to go to them and humbly say, I'm really struggling in this area and I need some help. The Bible says wisdom is found in a multiplicity of counselors and it would be very good for you to get the help. God longs for you to get the help you need. It may involve professional help and we wanna offer that for you. So if you need help in that way, we wanna find you some professional counseling that can help deal with some of the bigger problems to help resolve those things. We want to get you the help. This sermon probably isn't gonna go far enough or long enough, and you can all amen that, to address all of those problems. And I don't think the text was driven to address every problem. The second thing I want to say before we move on is God is the biggest fan when it comes to marriage. And so if you have any thoughts, if you have any thoughts, if you have any uh, kind of thinking that says, my husband, my wife, they're not worth it, that's not coming from God. God has created your spouse for your good to bring great glory to himself and he wants you to invest in your marriage. He wants you to engage in your marriage and he loves it, he loves it. He loves it when you find great good in your marriage. I will go as far as this, God finds greater glory when he sees a husband and wife living together. I think he sits there and says, I created that. I created that. And that's what he wants. It's like a parent longing for their children to find great joy. The great sense of joy that our Father in heaven has when he sees two of his children living in harmony with one another. Not in perfection, but in harmony with one another. And so with that, let's understand a couple things. First of all, marriage, marriages are like snowflakes. No marriage is the same. Why? Because it always involves two unique people. So every marriage is unique because you two are unique people that have created that marriage. The but all marriage is different than your marriage and your marriage is different than the people sitting next to you's marriages. We're all different because we're all unique and we've seen thousands upon thousands of models and, and examples of marriages. There are some marriages that we would love to emulate and we see them whether in real life or on the screen where we sit there and say that's what I want my marriage to look like it's that kind of marriage that I want to have maybe it's your mom and dad and what a great model that that would be for uh, many to have experienced that but let's be honest in a fallen world there are many marriages and examples of marriages we want to erase from our thinking that we see them and there's this visceral response. I, I don't want that. I don't want to be near that. Maybe you're living in that kind of marriage right now where you're feeling like this is not what God intended. This is not what God created. And this is not heaven on earth. It's the other direction. 
And I'm experiencing this, and I'm, and I'm really struggling with this. No two marriages are the same. But I want you to recognize that because of that, there's no cookie-cutter approach to marriage. As we look at, at TV, we recognize that there's a lot of different displays of marriage in our world of, of television. Maybe your, your marriage is a battlefield. You're the Cramdens from the Honeymooners. Everything's an argument. Everything is a fight. To the moon, Alice, right? And yet, it, it would seem that the writers of the Honeymooners always made sure that they always showed a love and affection to them. Yeah, they were hot-headed. Both of them were. They were sharp-tongued, yes. They gave each other the business, but they always had this love and affection. And maybe that's where you're at. And maybe you got to be careful with how you share with one another, but that's how God's created you. You both are, are very passionate in that way. Maybe God has created one of you to be reasonable and another of you to be a free spirit. One is the gravity that keeps you on the ground and the other one's floating away. I think of Ricky and Lucy Ricardo. And I think of Ricky always trying to address and, and deal with the problem that free-spirited Lucy would find herself in trouble with. And he was the ballast in the boat that kept Lucy from overturning. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you married your opposite. And in some ways, you love that. You love what that person brings out in you. And at the same time, it drives you absolutely up the wall. And maybe you find yourself being the rational one against the irrational one. I think of George and Wheezy Jefferson. Louise Jefferson always had to deal with the hot-tempered outbursts, the unbecoming statements that George would make. She was the voice of reason in her husband's life. And she would correct him in the moment, but you would see over and over again that she would quietly, behind the scenes, address the issue, and her husband would respond in a right way, only to then make a mistake just moments later. And maybe you find yourself needing to correct your spouse over and over again, and yet what you saw with the Jeffersons is that they loved one another. Uh, maybe you find yourself both being dysfunctional. I mean, people look at you and they're like, how do they take care of their children? How, how are their kids fed and clothed? And how do they balance a checkbook? And how are they, man, their life is just one big cartoon and I give you point and check, Homer and Marge Simpson. And maybe that's your life. And it's just a whole lot of dysfunction. And, and yet with Homer and Marge, it seemed to work. They had a love and affection for one another. Maybe your marriage doesn't fit the norms. Maybe the wife is out working. Maybe she makes more. Maybe dad is at home. Maybe it, it doesn't fit. Maybe you're the one kind of odd couple, if you will, in the, the small group. I'm reminded of the Seaver couple from Growing Pains where Maggie went to work and Mike stayed home and it was this whole change of roles and, and, and in some ways identities. And they found a way to love one another and to, to care for one another. And maybe you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Tim. My, my marriage is a dream. I'm beautiful. He or she is beautiful. Our teeth are perfect. Our hair is meticulous. We're popular, we're loved by friends, everything's going for us. It's as if we're living a teenage dream. Yes, you are living the Kelly and Zach 
life. <laughs> and they got married, and it works. All of this to say, I don't want you to think that what Paul is going to talk about is that your marriage has to be one thing. I want you to notice that there are two principles about marriage that he wants you to know. He wants your marriage to serve as a good in your life. It needs to be something that's beneficial to you and to your spouse. And it needs, even more importantly, to be God-glorifying. And if you can make all of your dysfunction, all of your idiosyncrasies, all of your personalities, all of your foibles work within those two things, then you don't need to apologize to anybody. You don't need to explain to anybody. It's a great, healthy marriage. If it's God-glorifying and it's serving as a good for your spouse and for you, it works. And Paul says, this is how these two things are lived out. Notice he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, it begins by being imitators of God. You and I, if we're going to get the most out of our marriages, we have to imitate God. Husbands, you have to imitate God. Wives, you have to imitate God. So on this Palm Sunday, my prayer is that we would invite Jesus into our marriages. And we would welcome him, as Jerusalem did, into our marriages. And to do so, we got to do three things this morning. Let's hit it. Number one, we need to recognize the problems that marriages face today. we got to identify and recognize the problems that marriages face today. As we approach this text, we got to understand there are some contextual issues within our time and culture that make it a little different than, than maybe the culture uh, before us, the generation before us. Maybe different than the generation that read this for the very first time, even though I think the Ephesian generation probably is closer to this generation than maybe some generations of, uh, of time before us. So write these things down. Here's some of the problems that are, that are, are facing marriages today. Number one, marriage is unpopular. Marriage is unpopular. It was a default thought that for the vast majority of people, again, in no pejorative way saying anything against, against uh, singleness, Jesus was single, the author of this book is single, the Apostle Paul. But for most people, they would grow up and they would get married. That was the kind of the foregone conclusion. That is not the norm moving ahead. There's this unpopular notion about marriage. And it really began with the millennial generation. There was this shift by the millennials as they looked at institutions, especially the institution of marriage, and they said, I'm not sure that that works for us. A recent study was done, and it asked the question, millennial views on marriage. A survey asked millennials, defined as 18 to 34, uh, this was done by USA Today in 2014, okay? So it's about 10 years old, okay? And it asked this question, how would you define your preferred view of marriage. Now I want you to go down to the, the fourth, uh, third one, till death do us part, that's a traditional view of marriage, okay? Um, and, and the idea here is that, uh, in essence, divorce would not be a thing. You would just, you're married, and you're married for a lifetime. 31% would be there. 
The views that, that held higher esteem, let's see how they are broke down, the presidential view. That view is that marriage is seen like presidential elections uh, there for four to eight years. And then after that four to eight years, you have a new election. You start putting new candidates on the ballot. And maybe some of you are like, man, that, that sounds like an idea. Okay? I would say that's not what God wants you to do. Okay? Then there's the beta version. Now, the beta version is getting a lot of play in European countries. And, and I think in Mexico, they've passed laws uh, in certain provinces of Mexico that you can have what they call beta versions of marriage. That is, you can try marriage out for a couple years and opt out without any recourse. It's like an annulment where you can get out of a marriage after a two-year period of time. Millennials said, I like that at 43%. Then the next one that we had on there was, of course, the traditional one. But this one, go ahead to the, the next one there, the multiple partner one. Now, this one has grown. Uh, in a recent study, this was as high as 19%. And, and to be honest with you, what this is, is this is uh, the idea of some level of bigamy, polygamy. Uh, this is the idea of having multiple spouses or, or multiple people involved in a marriage. This is by far the, the largest growth of any of the categories. So gone are one husband and one wife. Now it's just, let's, let's make a group thing out of it. And, and, and making sure that all of our needs, because one person cannot uh, fulfill every one of our needs, so I need multiple people there to address all of them. And then I, I like this one, the real estate version. And the real estate version is marriage licenses are granted at five, seven, 10, and 30 year terms, after which the marriage must be renegotiated or extended. So you say, listen, okay, this marriage is built for this reason, and so we're gonna be married for this long, and, and one of the ones that, that really has gained a lot of movement has been uh, the 20-year marriages that create enough time for a family and then to be done. So you raise your family and then you go your separate ways. And you go and do your own thing. All of this to say marriage as the Bible has defined it is out the door. Yesterday I read an article, uh, was one of the leading headlines in my little blips of, of top headlines. It came out of Great Britain. A new study was done. Again, it was a group of millennials uh, and Generation Z, which comes after millennials, where it said of British individuals, I think it was, it was somewhere in seven to 10,000 people were, were uh, surveyed. 50% of them said that they don't believe they'll ever get married. And so our young people are saying marriage isn't a very popular endeavor. It doesn't seem to make sense. Now, they want everything that may come with marriage, but they don't want to engage in the commitment of it. That's the first big problem. Uh, let's keep going. I won't address them as long as that one. But the second one is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. For some of you, you, your marriage is having issues because of unmet expectations. You have a desire, you have a want, you have an expectation. Whether it's declared or not to your spouse, it's there. It might be a financial expectation, it might be a parental expectation, it might be a relational expectation, an emotional expectation, a sexual expectation. You have something in your mind, in your heart. You have something that you say, a good husband, a good wife should be doing this and they're not. And it's driving you nuts. And again, your spouse may know it, your spouse may not know it, 
and it's creating real issues within your marriage. Number three, unresolved issues. Something has happened in the past. Something you've done, something your spouse has done, and it's created a festering, a bitterness. Anger has grown. It's what the the text says earlier in chapter four. Uh, You've allowed the sun to go down on your anger, and it's created a wedge. Maybe the problem isn't in the here and now, The problem is from something years ago. And maybe you even said you forgave it. Maybe you said it's in the past, but it's there. And everything that that person does, everything that person says goes through that funnel and you don't believe them or or you think the worst of them and it's a problem. Number four, unbiblical notions. Unbiblical notions. Some of you have taken the Bible and used the Bible as a weapon against your spouse. You'll take passages like this and you'll start demanding and demeaning and controlling and harassing and abusing your spouse. You are the people that will take my words today. You will, before you get in the car, you will use what I say as a weapon. And here's what I will tell you. You come to me afterwards, you say, we need to talk about our marriage, and I find out that you use my words as a weapon, I'm gonna side with the other person. I don't care where they sided. Because my words aren't to be used as a weapon. That's not why they're being shared. And that's not why Paul's doing it. Paul did not write these words to the Ephesians so that as they left the Ephesus church that day, they could get in big arguments. It's for their good and for God's glory. And so don't use the Bible and unbiblical notions to beat and harass one another to do what you think the spouse should be doing. Number five, ungodly actions. Maybe sin has become a problem in your marriage. It could be almost anything. A sin of any kind that's distancing you from your spouse. It could be another person on the far end of the spectrum. It could be the issue of pornography. It could be elevating children to a place of prominence that they shouldn't be. It could be passivity. It could be an inability to to harness your your emotions and and because of that, your emotions are creating issues within uh, the marriage. There's a lot of things. We're sinful people and our sins can bleed into not only our lives, but can bleed into the, the marriage relationship. And finally, and I think this is the one that's most subtle, and I think the one that probably most marriages are struggling with, probably marriages that are probably most involving people that are my peers, or what I call unsustainable patterns. Unsustainable patterns. And the reason why our marriages aren't as healthy and vibrant as they can be is we're just not giving them oxygen. We're just not giving them oxygen. There's no time, there's no space, there's no uh, ability or effort to give to it. Why? Because we are under so much stress because we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're trying to give our kids way more than they really need because we're trying to keep up with what the other neighbors are giving their kids. And so we're coming and going and all we are is a bunch of Uber drivers waving to each other, exhausted by the end of the day. We're filling our lives with unsustainable things because we need to have so much stuff. We both gotta work. 
And we both have got to be exhausted because we've got to live in houses that we never use for hospitality. We've got to drive cars we never needed. To go on vacations we probably shouldn't need to have if we didn't busy ourselves so much. And all the while we keep saying, well, when the kids are gone and when the project's done and when we have a little time, then that's when we'll focus in on our marriage. And one of the leading numbers right now of divorces happen when the kids leave the nest. Why? Because after all the coming and going, you've realized you have nothing in common with that person. That person's a stranger. Because you're not living life in a one flesh relationship as God intended. So here's the thing. Spouses, you need to talk with one another. And, and I would just, I would ask, sit down with a cup of coffee at the dining room table with the TV and the phones off and just say to one another, can we just take a moment and go down this list? Where do you see some realigning needing to be done? Where can we fix some things? Where can we address some things? And without throwing bombs towards one another, to start working through some of these things, face the problems, recognizing the problem is the first step to the solution. Number two, now we get to the text, right? We'll be done here by 4.30. You're doing great. Number two, we've got to remember the part that each member plays. So now Paul addresses in the text, he says, okay, you know, we know there's a problem. We know that people have all kinds of definitions of the role a husband and a role a wife plays. We know that we're all selfish. We know that by nature we're people of sin. And so we're going to default to sinful practices and desires. And we're going to bring those sinful practices and desires within uh, the, the relationship of marriage. And so we need truth brought to our lives. And Paul addresses both men and women, husbands and wives, and he starts with women. Now, why does he do it? I don't know. And the wives right away can say, how convenient. We get the first, we get the first words written by a man, preached to us by a man. I wonder how this is going to go. And so he starts, and, and I want you to know, he's going to give you 95 words. I counted them. 95 words. He's going to give the men 197 words. Why? Because women, you just get it a whole lot quicker. And men were like, uh, can you explain? I don't understand. And so he gives lots of illustrations, pictures, drawings. Okay. 197 words for men. So let's address women. He starts with wives, okay? Speaking specifically. Do not put women in there. This is speaking very specifically to a wife in a marital relationship, okay? And that's how I'm going to address it. Wives. Now let's, let's, let's start with this. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Danger, Will Robinson. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. That word has caused more fights amongst engaged couples, submit, than any other word. But here's the problem. We think that word means something it doesn't mean. We think that word means someone who is lesser, listening to, doing what someone who is greater tells them to do. 
That couldn't be farther from the truth. This is not an issue of equality at all. And the Bible makes that clear. So if you think this is a hierarchy, uh, hierarchy of, of importance, of e equality, uh, of value, of intellect, you're, you're, you're blowing it. And I'll just give you this example. The Bible says Jesus submitted to the Father. If you make submit a word that makes someone lesser and someone greater, you have destroyed the Trinity. You've destroyed the Trinity because the Son has uh, submitted himself to the Father and yet they are equal. Equal in thinking, equal in stature, equal in prominence, equal in, in every way. And so it's got to mean something else. But let's understand, wives, a couple things about you. Number one, you are of equal importance to God as your husband is. You are of equal importance to God as your husband is. In the book of Genesis, it makes it clear, both of us are made in the image and likeness of God. It wasn't like God's like, well, I made man, man, that's really great. And then I made woman, and that's a, a copy. And, and it's not as brilliant, it's not as radiant. Well, that's just not the case. Both are created in the image and likeness of God. And, and this is what we've got to understand. While God declares himself and, and speaks of himself in the masculine, just as Jesus himself took on uh, the masculine when he came to the earth, we need to recognize, and listen very carefully, we need to recognize that the femininity that we see in our wives are image-bearing characteristics that come from our Father in heaven. Because they're image-bearers. And so what we see in them is a part of God that we men will not see in ourselves. They are equal in importance. Equal in intelligence, equal in, in, in all ways to their husbands and to, to men. Number two, wives carry great influence in their marriage. So wives, submit to your husbands. Yes, but you have great influence. First Peter chapter three, verse one, speaks of the incredible influence that a wife has within the marriage. The ability to sanctify an unbelieving husband, the scripture says. That's a theological misnomer. How is an unbeliever sanctified? That word sanctified is only spoken of in the Bible as, a, as a, a work that is done on believers. And yet, because of the influence of a, a believing wife, she can sanctify in some way her unbelieving husband. That's influence. And I will just tell you, my wife Amanda has incredible influence in my life. No one influences my life more than my wife Amanda. Her word, her thoughts, her feelings matter more to me except God himself. She influences me and your wife should influence you husbands in that way. Number three, wives are their own individuals. They have their own walks with Jesus. They have their own gift sets, their own ministries, their own quiet times. They have their own ability to pray. They don't need their husbands to do any of that. They will stand as individuals on the day of judgment on their own. They will hear, apart from their husbands, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Next, wives don't have to agree with their husbands because their husbands aren't infallible. Just because a wife needs to submit to her husband doesn't make her husband infallible. Acts 5.29 says that when uh, men do things that are uh, against God's word, the word that God gives his people is to obey God and not man. And wives, if your husband is calling you to do something, is, is commanding you to do something, is inquiring of you to do something that goes against God's word, God's word says rebel against him. Rebel against him. Do not be subject to sin. Obey God, not man. And so these things are truths that we need to, so, so what, is, what does it mean to submit? It, the word, Greek word is hupotasso. Hupotasso literally means in the Greek to subject oneself, to place oneself under. The word literally means to emphasize the voluntary nature of submission. It is a decision that is made by the choice of the one submitting. When Jesus submitted himself to the Father, it wasn't the Father who told the Son to do it. Jesus made the decision, I will submit myself to the Father. It is the wife who makes the decision, I am going to submit myself to the husband. Now notice the submission isn't to men. Wives, submit to your own husbands. But what does that look like? To submit to oneself is literally to say to your husband, for the sake of our good and for the sake of God's glory, I am going to play harmony while you play melody. I'm going to allow you to lead and I will follow your lead. Now this morning, our worship team followed the lead of Josh. Does that mean that the other people couldn't do it? No, but someone needs to lead. And what would have happened if Josh started playing one song and John on our drums played another song and Allison on the keys played another song and Amanda started singing another song, we would have all said, what in the world's going on? But what happened was, is the group said to Josh, you lead, we'll follow, and what did they do? They made beautiful music. There was melody, there was harmony, there was a first chair, there was a second chair, and there was submission. Not because one was greater than the other, but because there was a decision for the good of the church and the glory of God that the best way we make music is everybody plays their part. And so the wife is saying, I am going to, for the good of us as a family and the glory of God, I'm going to submit myself to this. Now notice the text says it's in everything. And, and what that means is not so much everything, a checklist of everything, but that this is the, the posture you're going to take. I'm going to take a posture uh, of submitting, and here's why. If my husband's the head and I am the body, there's paralysis if the body doesn't do what the head says, and there's paralysis if the head goes one way and the body goes another. So submission is the, 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 the thinking that as the head goes, so goes the body. John Piper puts it this way, and I think this is helpful. He says the following. Submission is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and so to help carry out it through according to her gifts. So, so a couple of things you're gonna see there. Honor and help. 
So if someone was to ask you, what does it mean to submit? It is to honor and it is to help. Honor, you're gonna take the lead. You got melody, husband. I'm gonna give you the melody. I'll play the harmony. And I'm gonna help you be the best melody player, the best melody singer you can be. Now this is where we get into specifics, wives. Notice Paul doesn't give us anything. Everything is omitted from this. And I think the reason why is it's dynamic. Because your husbands have different voices. They, have, they play different instruments. And so you're going to help them in different ways to sing their song, to sing the song of the family, to play that song. The way Amanda helps me is gonna be different than the way your wife helps you. Why? Because I'm a different person. I'm a different husband. I have different gifts and abilities. I have different weaknesses than you do. And so she's gonna compliment me in ways that, that maybe another wife might compliment in a totally different way, and that's dynamic. And so what a wife needs to ask her husband is this, am I honoring you? Or is there a fight? Are we fighting about who's gonna take the lead? Or the question needs to be asked, how can I be helping you? My family was gone for a short trip this week and I was doing the driving and Amanda was doing the navigating. It was not good when I would try to navigate and drive at the same time because you can't do both. And so I needed Amanda to tell us, you're gonna turn right here, you're gonna turn left here. This is what you're going, to, you're going to do. This is where you're going to go. I needed to focus in on what I was focusing in on and she needed to do her part. And if I wasn't driving, I needed to, we needed to flip that. But I was in the driver's seat and God has given the job of, of the man to be that driver. But if a man starts grabbing the steering wheel, look out. And some of you, there's this war going on. Well, I don't like being in the passenger seat. I want to be in the driver's seat. And so wives, here's the thing. Guys, by the way, this is not something you command your wife. You cannot command your wife. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say a man is to say to his wife, submit. Nowhere. So if you use that word, you're on your own. You're on your own. That's not your job. That's between her and her God. Let God work with her. You've got your own issues. So let's get to them, 197 words. Husbands are to love and lead their wives. Paul now focuses on them. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. He focuses on husbands. You are to lead. And he dedicates these words of leading. He says, you're the head. You're the direction setter. Well, how are you to lead? And guys, we love this. We hear lead and we're like, all right, preach it. It's my way. Okay. It is your way. And you know how you get your way? By loving. By loving. Every time it ever talks about leading as a husband, it always goes back to this issue of loving in the New Testament. And the reason why we know it is because we are to be imitators of God. How does God lead us? He loves us. And so we are told twice that we are to love as Christ loves the church. And so listen to me, guys. I've talked with the ladies. They've responded very, very well. Now let me tell you this. 
And this is as true for me as it is for you. I, I don't care how successful we are, how much money we make, how great the other guys in our group think we are, what the people at the gym say about us, what our bosses say about us, what the press says about us. If your wife can't say unequivocally that she is loved by you, you don't have an, a wife issue, you got a God issue. Because you are called to love Christ, love her as Christ loves the church. That's our job. It has been said it wouldn't be that hard to submit to a guy that does that. Can you say that? Will your wife say that? Do that test. Is there anything in my life that I love more than my wife? So to ask that question, it's not enough to just say, well, of course I love my wife. That's easy to do. Let me ask you this. Are you sacrificing for your wife that you give yourself up for her? Sacrifice. This means there's nothing more important in this world except God than your wife. Go down the list. What contends for your affection and attention? Your job, your hobbies, working out your body, working woodwork, your TV, selfish sins? What are you sacrificing? What are you walking over her to get to? What are you using her to achieve? Paul says, God's word says, we are to give ourselves up, lay ourselves down for her. That's how we lead. So do the test, guys. Women, no comments here. Are you loving your wife by sacrificing for her? And it's not just a one and done on a daily basis. He goes on, are you shepherding her? Verses 26 and 27, that he might sanctify her, this is speaking of Christ, being, uh, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What Paul says is Jesus, as the groom, he is shepherding the church. That is, he's providing for the church, he's pastoring the church, he is protecting the church. He's doing all of that so that on the day of judgment, when the church stands before God, the church will be seen as beautiful without spot and blemish. And Paul says that that should be the goal of the pastor husband. Each of you guys are pastors of your little church. And the most important member of your little church is your wife. And then your children are the next important members of your church. And your number one job is to present your wife as pure and radiant to your God in heaven. Now here's the problem. She hitched her wagon to you. And so she says, I submit myself to you. So she goes where you go. She does what you do. She fills her calendar, excuse me, the way you fill your calendar. 
And she's doing so because she's submitting, she's subjecting herself unto Christ to you. And so you are on the hook, you are responsible for leading her to good places spiritually. And I'm telling you guys, one of the things we will be judged for will be how we pastored our wives. And did we pastor them to just live in this world or did we pastor them to love Jesus? And, and then this, this will beg the question, did she see that in you? To love the word, did she see that in you? To be given to the people of God and the pursuits of God, and did she see that in you? Did you lead that for her? Are you shepherding her? Are you leading her well? Number three, are you serving her? Verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. This involves the daily routine of life. And what it's talking about is all the things we do on a daily basis to maintain the best version of ourselves. So we got up, we took showers, we got up and we did all sorts of things. Things of hygiene, things of grooming. And we did so to present the best version of us. And we've got the checklist down. The things we do before we go to work, the things we do before we go out in public, all of these things. We eat, we do all these things because we take care of our bodies. And what the, the, the text is telling us is that husbands, you can't just worry about yourself presenting the best version of yourself, but because she's a direct outpouring of who you are, she's a direct uh, connection to you, you need to make sure you are presenting her in the best version of who she is. And so you are caring for her, you are nurturing her, you are providing for her everything she needs so that the best her can blossom and grow. And you do that to the best of your ability. And you do that because you're the head and, and she's the body and you're connected. And so husbands, your assignment this week is to ask your wife, Am I lovingly leading you by sacrificing for you, shepherding for you, and serving you? And which of those can I do better? And I would encourage when those questions are asked by a spouse that you don't hammer them, but that you graciously and kindly give them helps. And you don't throw it at them when they mess up, but you continue to walk with them and help them. And here's why. Because we're members of his body. And God has joined us together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. My final point, and I'll close with this, we've got to reflect this picture. We have to reflect this picture as a model to the world. If there's a time that the world needs to see marriages that are for good and glorify God, it's now. But it's more than that, because marriage, what Paul says, is a picture of what the relationship between us as Christians and Christ looks like, and what Christ has done. And at times, that's going to be a, a, a hard picture for us to see, but as, as we begin to see it, hopefully our picture is pointing people to what Christ intended for marriage to look like.
In a book, I would recommend The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. He illustrates marriage this way, and I'll close. He says, marriage is a lot like salsa dancing. In salsa dancing, he says, it requires a leader and a follower who must work together in harmony to create a beautiful dance. A healthy marriage requires both partners to play their respective roles and work together to build a strong and fulfilling relationship. In this book, he emphasizes the importance of submission, communication, and commitment to serving one another. And he says this, just as dancers dance the salsa, husbands and wives must be attuned to their partner's movements and respond accordingly. So my word to you as couples is start dancing. Husbands and wives, teach, take each other's hands and start dancing. And it'll be awkward at times. You'll step on each other's toes. You'll be out of step and out of time, if you will. But as you trust God, as you focus in on each other's needs, slowly and surely it will begin to happen and you'll start to see the enjoyment of what God created marriage to be a gift for your good and something that you can display the glory of God to a watching world who are you in this marriage the world wants you to say that it's all about you but God says it is way more about your spouse's good and about his glory.